0: Morning, you bombastic baboons, and welcome back to Puzzled Monkey. How's everyone doing? How's everyone getting on? I'll tell you what, I went back to Manchester on Monday to pick up a few things from one of my old houses, and I had the fortune of bumping into a few friends, and I'll tell you what, it was a bloody tonic for the soul. It's genuinely given me a high, like I'm stoned off friendship. (laughs) Lamest thing I've ever said. Um, No, genuinely, it was so lovely to see these wonderful people. And, you know, it's not as if I hadn't spoken to them on the phone or on uh, whatever, whatever app that we have to uh, to engage with others. But it was just so lovely just to actually conversate and just have to crack with someone one on one in an open space. You know, oh, it was glorious. And um, it's just made me rethink a few things about, you know, what's important in life. Uh, and how important friendship is, and all of those delightful things. I thought I'd just share that with you. I thought I'd just open my heart to you guys, my beloved listeners. So yeah, value your friends, and value them when you can see them more often. Take advantage of that. I certainly will be. So it seems that the format of last week's podcast was a bit of a success. I think some people perhaps have been too polite to tell me to actually talk about something a little less, I don't know, depressing maybe? Anyway, thank you to everyone who got in contact to give me some feedback on that new style. I think it is something I'm going to be doing a bit more of in the future. But what am I talking about today? Well, I want to carry over this animal focus from the previous episode. Today, I'm going to talk about marauding crocodilians, semi-aquatic Slavic cows, and ingenious plans on the Emerald Isle of Ireland to ship unweaned calves to slaughter via aeroplane. And in all of these cases, I want to pay close attention to how these animals, these specific animals, are represented and characterised. Now, how did I get down this week's rabbit hole? Well, my lovely friend Jess sent me a news story she thought I'd enjoy a couple of days ago, and it was about a mass breakout of crocodiles from a farm in South Africa. And this story got me a little bit excited because, unbeknownst to her, I've always had this little fascination by animal escape stories. And this crocodilian story got me thinking, why? Partially, I think it's because I absolutely loved the film Chicken Run when I was a kid. If you haven't seen this film, lads, it is an absolute classic. Although I do have this issue when I watch films from my childhood, where I start Digging way too deep into the story and look for a kind of hidden meanings, ideologies and symbols. You can imagine that I'm a delight to watch a film with. You see, when I was younger, Chicken Rom was about some feathery geezers escaping from their egg-laying servitude on a chicken coop. But now, through my jaded adult lens, it's a story of indentured proletariat workers who toil in a manufacturing plant, who rise up and demand their freedom, overthrowing the landowning Tsarist loyalists who continually and ruthlessly exploit their labour for personal gain. It's moments like this I realise that I do need to get out more. Maybe this is why I enjoyed hanging out with my mates so much. Didn't have to think about this shit. <laughs> Alongside watching this film about a thousand times, There have also been a few occasions, a few events in my life that for some reason have got me really interested or scared about the prospect of animals escaping their captivity. First and foremost, I used to live literally next door to Bristol Zoo. I mean, I'm so close that I could hear the lions snoring at night. Or at least that's what my mum told me they were doing. I have some other hypotheses. So, Being so close, the prospect of their escape was actually quite a visceral concern of mine. And I thought that, you know, when I left Bristol, this trope would disappear. I wouldn't ever really be concerned about this issue. But on the contrary, it doubled down. Now, after we left Bristol, my family relocated to rural Staffordshire. Not the kind of place you would expect to have kind of run-ins with runaway animals. We lived very close to a canal, so I presumed the only real run-in I would have would be with, I don't know, one of the Queen's finest swans. But oh, how naive I was, because people in the countryside in the UK own and do very strange things. And I learned this very quickly, because I think within a year of living there, an emu escaped from a farm i presume or a private collection and proceeded to bolt down the canal towpath the image of this gigantic flightless feathery bastard flying down the towpath is just so so wonderfully juxtaposed to the kind of activities that you usually see on this towpath you know the golden oldies taking their sweet time going down the dogs frolicking leaping into the water and the young lads selling weed at really extortionate prices. It's safe to say that nobody really expected to see this flightless bird speeding down the path on a Tuesday. And let's not beat around the bush here. These birds can be pretty brutal. I mean, I've heard they've got a strong nip on them, and their kick is not to be joked about. So it was quite a serious thing. People were kind of terrified. You can imagine in a small village... The news of the of the escapee. It was like the Shawshank Redemption. You know, people were talking about it in hushed tones. Now, don't ask me how, but the emu was caught and brought to justice. It's probably now rotting away in a cell in Stoke-on-Trent amongst the other madeds. But see, the maddest thing about this story is that it wasn't an isolated incident. Things like this actually happen quite often where I live. I really don't know why. I viscerally remember my mum ringing me up a few years ago and telling me that somebody's python had got loose on the canal path. And no, that's not an analogy before you say. I mean, what the fuck is going on with this particular canal path? Does it have some mysterious qualities that attract all these bizarre animals? Anyway, some fellow was obviously being negligent and let his beast get loose. And you know, you can imagine the uproar that the escaped snake created. I mean, people went mad for the emu, but at least you could kind of see it. I guess it's a bit like the sharks we discussed in the previous episode. There is something inbuilt within us to fear the snake. I think it's kind of a hangover from Christianity. And, you know, many of us in the UK may not actually be Christian, but we're culturally Christian. So there's this kind of inbuilt fear of the snake and its relationship to the fall of man. And because of this, the escaped python slithered into the imaginary of the people in the area. The idea that a single snake was on the loose changed the behavior of individuals. My mum told me this. People were more fearful to take their dogs out. There were even fears that, you know, they were gonna encounter this beast when they were having a bath or something. You know, they were gonna encounter this snake whilst doing their ablutions. And obviously, stories like these that trigger such an emotional response really take hold in areas of low population and areas where, frankly, there's feck all else to talk about. You know, this story became the 9-11 event of the hamlet. And you know what? Come to think of it, my mum never rang me to say that they found the snake. So keep that in mind the next time you explore the joyous waterways that the Midlands has to offer you might find something more than you wished for anyway i realize i've just spent about 8 minutes discussing really unimportant things that happen in rural areas of england but it is for a reason i promise because i think this story of the escaped crocodiles in south africa has triggered the same kind of imaginary of fear that the python and the emu triggered in rural staffordshire so what actually happened basically Last week, an unknown number of Nile crocodiles escaped from a breeding farm in the western Cape province and slipped into the Breed River. At present, I think 27 of the crocodile convicts have been seized and returned to their cells, while another 7 had to be put down. But there are estimations that somewhere between 100 to 1,000 of these animals are still on the loose. So we're talking about quite a distinctly different scale in comparison to the single emu or python that now roam the towpaths of the Colden Canal. And these crocs are obviously no joke. The ones that escaped were between 1.2 to 1.5 metres long each. And how the hell do you go about trying to catch something that big? Well, conservation officers have been using cages with food inside them as a way of trying to lure the crocodiles back. However, the river they escaped into is full of fish, so they flatly ignored all the offered food. They've basically stuck a scaled middle finger up at the farmers and the conservation officers alike. So how afraid are local people, and how afraid should they be? Well, The Nile crocodile is native to South Africa already, so it's not like the python alongside the canal outside my mum's gaff. But judging from the reporting, you'd think that this crocodile escape was an alien invasion akin to the War of the Worlds, or a breakout of the Death Eaters from the Azkaban prison. And it's really interesting how widespread this story has become. It was picked up by loads of news organisations in lots of different countries. Pakistani and Italian headlines describe a police hunt for man eating crocodiles after farm escape. Indian outlets state that the hunt is on for wild young crocodiles that escaped into South African River. And a German outlet states that an unknown number are still at large. This language that we use here conjures up the image of these young, bloodthirsty beasts intent upon little else than the consumption of Homo sapiens. And, you know, maybe this is a little understandable, because 63% of attacks on humans by Nile crocodiles are fatal, which does make them probably the most prolific predator of humans in the animal kingdom. However, are these cooped-up crocs the ones we really need to be worried about? You know, they've been cooped up in probably cramped, unnatural conditions, unable to move, and being prepared for slaughter for months, if not years. This obviously isn't the characterization that's been employed by the news outlets. They've decided not to go with this line because, to be honest, it would perhaps make people question why the crocodiles are being kept in this way. And obviously, just like the Shark Week documentaries, hyperbole and violence always sells. You know, if you solely read the titles of these articles, you can be forgiven for thinking that the crocs... Are engaging in prison workouts, getting ridiculously buff, preparing their body and mind for getting out of pen and defeating their nemesis, the Homo sapiens. Part of me wonders whether this hyperbole is just a way to distract from a much more glaring question that points to a much more serious issue. Why the hell, in the first place, are we keeping thousands and thousands of crocodiles in squalid conditions just so that your ants can get a new purse? For myriad reasons, questions such as the utility and morality of utilising animal skins purely to make oneself look more bougie do not make their way, often at least, to the headlines of newspapers. Anyway, these representations of apex predators, how we frame them and how it creates and perpetuates a certain ideology about them, got me thinking about how we frame non-predatory species, species that don't directly compete with us in our niche. And once again, stories about animal escapes help us unpack this. In 2018, a Polish cow refused, flatly refused, to get on a lorry destined for the slaughterhouse. And hey, who could blame her? The great escape started when she broke ranks, smashing through a metal fence which broke a man's arm in the process, before she leapt into the water and swam to an island in the middle of a lake. Eyewitnesses claimed that at certain points she even dived underwater to move faster away from what she must have seen as her assailants. Relatively soon after, a team of firefighters were sent to retrieve her, But then she returned to the water, swimming across to a neighbouring peninsula. This game of cat and mouse carried on for a fair while, to a point in which the farmer considered actually having her shot. But then, in response to this, a collection of local politicians, townsfolk and celebrities came together to demand that she be allowed to live out her natural life in peace on the island, with no threat from the farmer, or anyone else for that matter. Now, this is undoubtedly a feel-good story. You'd find it in your Facebook feed shared by your auntie. It gives you that little ah feeling in the belly. And people love stories like this. Understandably, I do too. Stories of good overcoming evil, bravery overcoming suffering. It fits all the archetypical ideas that drive common films and common media. But I wonder, in the same way that the hyperbole of the danger posed by the escaped crocodiles was used in the previous story, perhaps this feel good feeling is a smokescreen that stops us asking more fundamental questions about why this glorious cow had to escape the situation it was in. It's interesting to me that when it is one cow, our empathy is triggered and we are totally for its liberation. Who, after all, would read this story and think that, you know what, the firefighters should go over to the island and shoot that cow in its face? The irony is, of course, that she would have suffered the same, if not worse fate, in the abattoir. I think that this story, this feel-good story about the cow, is actually more dangerous than the story about the bloodthirsty crocs. This is because it serves to reinforce the cognitive dissonance that emerges when we think, or actually do not think, about the unimaginable scale of suffering that humans inflict upon livestock animals such as cows every single day. I say day because 800,000 cows are killed every 24 hours. 800,000 cows just like the courageous one that escaped from the van, swam to a bloody archipelago and lived there happily ever after. Sometimes I think that we're just not wired to comprehend that scale of loss of life. I mean, when you think about human genocide, it's impossible to grasp the scale. 1.5 million Armenians murdered in 1915 6 million Jews murdered in the Holocaust. 800,000 Tutsis murdered in a single year in Rwanda. How can the human brain comprehend such levels of loss? Perhaps, perversely, it's a blessing that we cannot. Perhaps it's our brain protecting us from reality. I think to a degree that is largely what cognitive dissonance is but this does not mean that we should not try and push back against it. In other words, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. There are many situations occurring at present that illustrate the real need to transcend the cognitive dissonance that we have towards the way in which we treat domesticated animals. A single issue that has reared its head in the news recently is that of live exports of cattle. Every single year, Nearly 2 billion animals are loaded onto trucks or ships and sent off to other countries to be butchered. These one-way trips often take a few weeks to complete, meaning that the animals on board are often subjected to extended periods of fear, terror and hellish conditions. During the Covid crisis, two specific export ships have gained notoriety. The El Baik and the Karimalar, are two Spanish vessels that have been crisscrossing the Mediterranean since December with no national authority allowing them to deliver their payload of cattle due to the rampant spread of disease on board. It's hard to comprehend what the last three months have been like for the 895 calves on the Karim La, and the 11,800 animals on the El Bayek. Surely this story should galvanise as much of a public response as the single escaped cow in Poland did. Surely the singers, politicians and locals are decrying the practice as we speak. And they may well be. But the issue here is that we cannot afford to extend the same empathy to these animals that we extended to the Slavic swimming cow. Because if we did we'd open up Pandora's box itself. Sideline morality for a second. Thinking logically, why is it that we're sending all of these calves overseas when we could be eating them in our own country? What is the necessity to send them that far away? The answer is, of course, economic in nature. And no case illustrates this better than a news story that came out in Ireland a couple of weeks ago. In the name of ethics and animal rights, of course, the Irish authorities plan to fly unweaned dairy calves from the island to EU destinations from May onwards. The argument here is that this approach would ease the impact the length of the journey via sea has on the welfare of exported animals. The State Agency for Agri-Food Tech has even got a nice and disarming name for this project, MOVE, with two O's. Do you see what they did there? Those clever paddies. It kind of reminds me of the Laughing Cow branding. There's always an infantilizing and playful portrayal of domestic animals when it comes to marketing the consumption of them or their bodily fluids. Anyway... Is this moralistic argument given by the Irish authorities the real reason why they've decided to start shipping these cows, that are often two weeks old, by the way, onto planes as opposed to boats? And I mean, look, these organisations are made up of individuals, aren't they? So some of these individuals likely will believe that this will have a beneficial impact on the welfare of the calves. And you know what? Scientifically, it actually might. However, this whole MOVE plan distracts attention from the real root of the problem. Ireland and Irish farmers are simply producing too many cows in the first place. If you didn't make the cows reproduce at such a brutally unnatural rate, all of this talk of live exports and freighting over shipping would be unnecessary. As always, the solutions to the problem have been decided before the issues have adequately been addressed and diagnosed. Just like the story of the escaped convict crocodilians and the Slavic cow, this story stops us from asking fundamental questions that animate the issue at hand. They actually reinforce our cognitive dissonance because they curtail any space, any opportunity to ask the question whether maybe, just maybe, Ireland might not need to pack bovines into boeings in the fucking first place. Whether we should actually have crocodile farms 1,000 strong just so that we can create purses, and whether we should be really that surprised that a cow doesn't wish to join the queue to the abattoir. So thanks a million, Jess, for setting this whole rant off. This is entirely your fault. I hope you're happy. No, seriously, thank you for sending me that. It was really kind of you. And I hope you are happy, actually. I hope everyone's happy. And with that call to happiness, joy, mirth, and love, I'm going to call this episode to an end. I hope you enjoyed it. I think you saw what I did there. I started off with this really lighthearted talk about, you know, rural Staffordshire, this idyllic lifestyle. And then we ended with kind of packing young calves into aeroplanes so that some people can enjoy a juicy wee steak. That's what we like to do here at Puzzle Monkey. We like to manipulate our listeners. I can tell someone's going to make a clip of that and then send it to me. Anyway, as always, thank you everyone for joining me today. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please think about sharing it with a friend. If you haven't followed the podcast on Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts, then please do. And if you're feeling like a true Samaritan, you could Write a little review on Apple Podcasts about how much you love Puzzled Monkey. That'll be great. Even if you don't do any of those things, I still love you. So, yeah, look after yourself, guys. Enjoy the sunshine if it's with you. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Ta ra.